Protecting your customers begins with best practices for securely capturing, storing, and protecting the data you collect for or about them. When an organization has a large enough data set, needs typically arise for doing analytical workloads or training machine learning models on this data. If you use random or mock data to generate a report or train a model, you arrive at an output that doesn't reflect the true use case of the organization. Success on tasks like this seems to require production data. Alternatively, perhaps production-like data is good enough. In this episode, I interview Alex Watson, co-founder and chief product officer at Gretel. We discuss their solution for generating privacy-preserving synthetic data that remains representative of the underlying data set. Alex, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. Excited to be here. Uh, to kick things off, can you tell me a little bit about your introduction to software and technology? Yeah, my uh, intro to software that really kind of just set me down the path I'm on today started, I think I was really lucky. I was in Indiana, you know, kind of grew up and started going to school in Indiana, and I had an exceptional computer science teacher that I got introduced to in sixth grade. And he started us off programming on a mainframe computer and dialing in and doing our homework assignments from our modems at home taught us how to hack into each other's uh, profiles and things like that, and really set me down that path. And uh, what's the path that led you to Gradle? Or is it pronounced Gretel? Sorry. It's a long one. And, you know, Gretel, yes, it's a long one. And as I think about it, it makes sense. But there's a few jumps. I went to uh, Indiana University for computer science, had an awesome experience there. Graduated in 2001, right after September 11th. And you know, never would have guessed this, um, but ended up going to the National Security Agency where I spent the next seven years and had a just incredible experience. I got to work at the time on really kind of big data and machine learning projects that were, in my opinion, a little bit ahead of their time. I left the NSA to go start up my own company. And what I wanted to do is actually uh, like help companies that were starting to use SaaS platforms, whether it's like Office 365 or Google Suite like identify and protect where their important data was so that they could start using those services, you know, more across their business and enable collaboration and things like that. So founded a company called Harvest AI in 2014, had some incredible customers as we were building it up. We built through uh, through a Series A and then we got approached by uh, a couple companies. AWS is one of them around acquisition when we were going out for a Series A raise and such an incredible opportunity and experience there to take Macy, which was our product, and bring it to the whole world and thinking about the scale that we'd be doing and the impact. Launching AWS's first security services was really, really cool. So we ended up getting acquired by AWS in 2016. For the next three and a half years, I was a general manager there and launched the first security services we had. And so much of Gretel and you know our inspiration, at least my personal inspiration for founding Gretel, was around things that I saw there. A, I saw the just incredible value of access to data that you have, you know, building inside a AWS or a Google or a Netflix, you know, companies that are incredible at working with data gives such an advantage. And a lot of those advantages are powered by a 500 person compliance team, you know, that many other companies can't replicate. And that creates a real business advantage. So that was, you know, kind of one piece that I, I think, you know, kind of leveling the playing field for any business that wants to compete in today's data world without having to collect all of the data, you know, that's one that really hits home. And a second piece, I think, was just realizing even our most sophisticated customers at AWS, like how hard of a time they had 
enabling access to, to data that could drive innovation. We really wanted to help tackle that. Well, working at AWS means you saw some of the biggest enterprise scale problems. I'm sure you saw some unique challenges at the NSA as well. What's unique about doing business at this large scale that uh, is especially challenging? What I found during my time at AWS was I gained an incredible appreciation for scale, for operational excellence, which is something that they'd really drive at the really at the company culture level. There is a weekly meeting that any developer in the company is invited to attend that goes all the way up to the SVP level. And we review the dashboards, essentially the, uh, the operational uh, effectiveness of our service. And there's a kind of infamous process where there is a wheel, kind of wheel of fortune style, and you spin the wheel and it lands on somebody's service. And whoever service it lands on presents their dashboard to the entire company. And if there's a blip on the dashboard, you know, where you had an outage or you had a, an unexpected increase in data, you really need to be able to explain that. And seeing that it's important all the way from a developer all the way up to like the SVP level, I think was so cool for me to see that. And I think it creates that type of culture that builds really high quality products. And that's something that we've worked to replicate it at Gretel. And, you know, I, I think is a really interesting thing for anyone in software space to look at. And can we get into the core value prop at Gretel? What do you help organizations do? So at Gretel, we believe that data is more valuable when it's shared. And the unfortunate circumstances, and for very valid reasons, it can be very, very, very difficult to enable access to data. Often, that data that is most valuable to a company, it's based on user information or private data or has lots of PII in it, things like that. These things are so difficult to solve using kind of manual redaction techniques and things like that, that many companies just put up barriers and they put up friction. And while they would love to enable a data scientist or a developer that has an idea to test it out on real data, they just can't do it because it's too risky. At Gretel, really, our goals are we build a simple set of, of APIs, but I think very powerful APIs that help developers build privacy or data scientists build privacy in their data. So this is a space that is gaining a lot of, of popularity over the past couple of years. It's called synthetic data. But to boil it down, essentially, we take machine learning models. We train them on your sensitive real-world data. I give an example uh, for a healthcare data set where the goal would be, how do we enable hospitals to share COVID research with other hospitals? You want the other hospitals to be able to learn about COVID. You don't want the hospitals to be able to learn about the patients. And that's really our goal with synthetic data is we use machine learning to create an artificial data set. So it has the same insights and same statistics and distribution as the real data, but it's not based on any individual person. So do I lose something in that process? Might my model have, you know, an artificial ceiling put in place because it's not the quote unquote true data? That's an area we're spending a lot of time researching on, and the answer to it is complicated. <laughs> I'll share some links for some research we just published where we took the top 10 data sets on Kaggle, the data science platform Kaggle, which are used for machine learning tasks. And we created synthetic versions of those data sets and ran the same machine learning tasks on them. No configuration, no tuning, nothing, just kind of straight across the board. What we saw was on average a 2 to 5% loss in accuracy that you would have, but what you gain here is a tremendous amount of privacy. So there's an advantage there. I think another area that's really exciting is there's a potential for this synthetic data to even outperform real-world data on many different data sets and use cases. And that sounds crazy, right? Like how could something that's artificial actually do better than the real-world data set? But the neat thing about using 
this application of machine learning to create synthetic data is that you can correct biases that exist in the original data. You can better, like, essentially architect your data set to be more fair or more representative of the type of output you want to get. So there's a couple examples I'd be happy to dive into around the healthcare space where we've actually seen, you know, 6 to 10% improvements in accuracy and also fairness across different types of data when you're telling your synthetic data model what type of data to generate. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the measures of fairness? How do you identify and then debias a data set? That is a very tricky proposition, right? Like really understanding the second and third orders of, of bias in a data set can be very difficult. There are some examples, and these actually, this foray that we had into starting with um, fair AI and bias and things like that actually came out of customer conversations and people using our open source synthetic data library. An example I can give you was very early in the company, we started working with the University of California, Irvine. Many medical institutions in the UC system, uh, for example, build take advantage of their, their hospitals to build medical data sets that they make available across, the, for example, the UC system. UCI is, has published some of like the core, you know, kind of reference data sets on Kaggle. For example, I think one that comes to mind is a, a disease, a heart disease detection data set. And what the UCI folks noticed was that while this is being used all over the you know, world to create models to detect heart disease from a set of, of traits or characteristics, there's biases that exist in the data set. And one that they were really sensitive to was that there was over a two to one ratio of males to females in the data set. So what they wanted to do was take our synthetic model use it, train it on the existing heart disease data set, and say, I'm going to balance out, essentially create enough synthetic or artificial female records. There's no substitute for having the real data, but essentially addressing the representation bias that existed in this data set. So you have a 50-50 ratio between male records and female records. And what this ended up accounting for was that most algorithms when you're training a classifier to detect heart disease, they're going to get really great at detecting male heart disease. And by balancing this out, it kind of forced the algorithms to think more across both classes. And it ended up, I think, if I remember correctly, it, it increased the overall performance of the data set for female heart disease detection by like over 6% and overall accuracy of the data set across both male and female detection by 2%. Wow, big win then. So I guess the key insight, yeah, is that you have two to one male to female in your data set. Did that have to come from, you know, a, a doctor who understood that, I don't know, if males are more susceptible or if they submit for exam more, I, I don't know the core cause here, but uh, how do you draw out that insight initially before you correct for it? You know, that it comes down to being a, a data science challenge where you have to understand the different dimensions and the classes in your data. So the UCI folks and, and people that are working on this data set, I'm sure this is something they saw during that like initial data discovery phase. Other use cases, you know, we've seen around balancing income prediction data sets and things like that, even down to voter data. You see this kind of common pattern where at some point it just becomes prohibitively expensive for you or impossible for you to get, you know, more sample data sets for heart disease that match the same distributions, the original data. So there's a pain point here where it's either so expensive for you to get more data to support building a better data set, or it's just impossible because the, the, the means used to collect the data no longer exist, for example. So I'm thinking of a deployment of this. Maybe I'm at a company, we've got a bunch of good real-world data in our production system, but it's locked up. I don't have access as a data scientist, but I know it's a Postgres database, or maybe there's some Parquet file sitting somewhere. How do I plug that into Gretel to get what I need? 
Gretel follows a like a data in, data out, a source sync model. So we really don't want to be opinionated about where you store your data. For example, whether you're putting in Postgres or you're putting in an S3. You know, from an architecture standpoint, Gretel is just APIs, and you uh, you submit a data set, you submit a configuration, which is defined in a YAML based configuration, or you can use our SDK, where we have a, a Python based SDK. But you send data in, you give it a configuration, you say, I want to create a synthetic model from this data set. I want to transform this data set. Really, you give it a task and say, generate 10,000 records based on this training data and give it back to me. For how you would integrate with a Postgres or an S3, I personally, you know, and I think our, our team definitely recommends like the really kind of durable storage. Like I think, you know, the blob storage, whether you're using S3 or you're using Azure blob storage or GCP storage is such a neat design pattern because it's so durable. You can access it from hundreds of spots at once and you're never going to impact your production database. So we see often customers, for example, taking the Postgres database, pushing updates and essentially storing the incremental updates that they have to that database to I'm going to just use S3 as an example in Parquet format. As soon as that you know, raw data hits S3, it sends a notification where you have some code, picks up an SNS notification, for example, notifies Gretel to create a synthetic version of that data set, and then dump it into another S3 bucket. So that's a, that's a pattern we see pretty often. That makes sense, yeah. And then what are my, as a data scientist who's maybe very picky about how this process is going to take place, what are my options for configuration? With data sciences, we've got three different interfaces you can use to interact with Gretel. The first is the console. So Gretel is free. You can sign in from our, our web uh, user interface. You can drag your own data set in. It's really that simple. And specify like what hyperparameters you want to change, if any, and train your model right there in the UI. With data scientists, the most popular application we see between the console and the SDK and the, uh, the command line interface would be the SDK. So uh, a lot of data scientists working inside uh, Jupyter Notebook environments, Databricks environments, things like that, that like to use the Python SDK because they can explore their data set, they can make any changes to it, and really, really have fine-tuned granularity over, over the, uh, the API and the, and the parameters when they call. And if I have a simple data set or I know my schema pretty well, I might already be able to tell you all the columns to worry about and stuff like that. But can you help me there if I've got something that's uh, a bit overwhelming and I don't maybe don't know where all the PII could lie? Yeah, that, that's a scary problem. And it's super time consuming for you know that poor data scientist or developer that's tasked with, uh, hey, create a safe or redacted version of this data set. We have the first couple stages with Gretel involve, it runs data classification, so it runs an identity recognition across the entire data set and tries to find where PII sits. You can run a set of default policies, for example, redact PII, or I want you to shift these dates so they're no longer people's birthdays or things like that um, across that data set in a completely automated manner. Just give it a, a configuration file. Define your own regular expressions if you want to, but it makes it really easy to do that first, you know, completely automated pass across the data where, you know, for example, you know, our ML will likely find a social security number that's buried 100,000 rows deep in your data set that you might not see um, just looking at it manually. And I'm curious about adoption. I can definitely see a use case for like a hospital that knows they need this and they have to push in this direction, but also for a very forward-thinking ML ops engineer who wants to bring this in-house. What are some of the typical paths to Gretel? 
When we started building Gretel, we built it a little differently than a lot of other companies in our space. And our idea was very similar to AWS, is to give like really nice documentation, make it very accessible, free to get started with, and let this be like a developer, a data scientist driven go-to-market motion. And what that means for us, we have a completely open source synthetic data core that you can start working with. It's completely free to use. Our SaaS service, which is also free up to a, a certain level, so we get free credits every month, has a bunch of new features on top of it that make it usable at scale. This motion for us, like, you know, kind of this, like, learn in public and open source, you know, data and, and our research as we go has really helped with adoption. So, you know, even as a, as a two-year-old company right now, we have about 2,000 developers using our platform. And we've got, you know, in the tens of getting close to 100 companies here that are using Gretel actively, which is pretty exciting. And can you cover it all? What sort of industries have shown the most interest in the product? Sure. Taking a step back on, on the industry with, with uh, synthetic data, you know, I think there's so much interest in synthetic data and we see it like centered around several different industries. With Gretel, what we've tried to build is a platform that will work for any data scientist, any developer in any industry that wants to create synthetic data. And that's really our vision as to be the, like, the hub or the place that people go to for synthetic data. Across our customer base, we see a ton of interest. I think a lot of it driven by, you know, the need to innovate after the pandemic and after COVID in the medical space. So whether it's life sciences, working with medical data sets, hospitals trying to find ways to monetize their data, all the way up to genomics research, see a ton of interest there. Financial space, I think, you know, obviously it has a, has a lot of interest and they're pretty forward leaning on adopting new technologies. But we see you know, really interesting use case, even in like the, for example, the gaming industry, which has been really fun to work with. Oh, what does gaming want to do? I think what that across the different gaming companies that we've been working with, we see a pattern where I think they've realized how incredibly sensitive the data is that they gather as a player plays a game. You know, how the player reacts, what type of games that a player likes to play. When you look at like the more immersive VR and like AR type experiences, you get incredibly specific location data, you get you know, in some cases, player heart rate data, things like that. And the the gaming companies, like this is, you know, to their credit, have really looked at this as something that needs to be, you know, protected. So popular use case I could, I could talk about right now would be how do you detect, you know, bots that are, you know, plaguing, for example, many like online ecosystems. Uh, you need to train your machine learning models on really granular player data. And some of those are bots and some of those are humans. So how do you create this to be safe where this data set doesn't contain any single player's information? It contains statistics that are representative of the entire set. And I'm curious if you can share any details on what this looks like operationally for the most mature of your customers. Is it part of everyday production or when I need to train a model, I go and use this? What's the typical use cases? We see many of our customers you know, that journey starts with coming in through our console or starting with um, some of the like open source examples that we have, for example, how to balance a data set, how to de-identify or, you know, apply differential privacy to a data set. From there, the question is, how do you operationalize it? And that's where we see a lot of customers leveraging the cloud and lever leveraging the interconnects that exist in the cloud. So, you know, whether it's that design pattern we talked about earlier with, uh, with S3 and, and notification, we did a workshop uh, using Airflow which was really cool, connecting to a Postgres database to create synthetic uh, models of that. So we see a, like a real trend once you understand what you want to do with the data and your goal, which might be create a 
a synthetic version of my Postgres database, create a, a synthetic you know, uh, version of my data lake. We see a ton of interest around uh, BigQuery and Snowflake and Redshift and other like uh, data warehouses, where as new data comes in, you want to synthesize that data. You want to create a, essentially a twin of that data warehouse or table that can be like essentially given wider access to or used to train ML algorithms. And I know you, and I appreciate the point you'd made earlier about Gretel not being too opinionated, that companies can use it in different ways. But for people that are getting into this for the first time and really need some direction, are there any best practices you typically recommend? I think I would recommend using one of those the design patterns that really will enable scale in the future. So for example, rather than connecting Gretel directly up to your Postgres database, having a way to export that data going from Postgres to a durable storage that you can use however you want to, you can query it, you can scale it, things like that work very well. So, you know, we're personally, you know, at the, at the company as we're working with customers, really excited about that type of automation. Frameworks like Airflow, I think are also, and the, the DAG frameworks are really exciting for like how you can build really complex pipelines and processes like that that are arbitrarily complex that you need. So highly recommend that. And, you know, we're trying to make this as simple as possible. So we are uh, releasing Example, uh, right now we've got, it's in beta testing, an S3 connector that you can launch just from the AWS marketplace. So a couple clicks, it provisions all of the infrastructure that you need to solve a common, you know, data classification, data transformation use case. And do any of your customers get a concern about the duplication of the data? I like the idea you described earlier about there being kind of a sibling table, but that sort of also sounds like I have 2x the storage now. It's really important to keep track of, uh, you know, like how often data gets duplicated across the business. What I would I would say is, you know, really the the end product that Gretel creates is a model, and you can use that model to create whatever you want, whether it's more data, arbitrary levels of data, or you could just query the model directly. I think the advantage of synthetic data is that you have data that looks just like your production data, but it's infinitely portable. So happy to kind of dive in on some of the, uh, the applications of privacy, but whether you're applying our privacy filters or differential privacy, you get some level of guarantees around the privacy of this data that enable you to share it in ways that you couldn't do before. So while it is, to your point, duplicating data and you're creating a, you know, another set of data, that data doesn't have the same implications if it gets accidentally emailed outside of your business or it gets lost or it gets you know, checked in on accident to GitHub. So while you are creating more data, that new data has much lower risk profile than the original data you're training from. And could you give a rough definition of differential privacy? Yeah, I like to think of differential privacy really not so much as an algorithm, but I like to think of it as a standard that algorithms can meet. And what is fascinating about differential privacy is it gives actual mathematical guarantees and protections to both kind of known attacks on privacy and even unknown attacks. So how does differential privacy work? <laughs> and you know, I've listened to your podcast before on this topic, and I think uh, it's a great reference, the, the example you did with the U.S. Census Bureau. What differential privacy does is it inserts noise into a data set that make it very difficult or impossible to figure out whether one individual person, their data existed in that data set or not. Can you expand a little bit about why that would be helpful in protecting my customers' privacy? If you can give, it sounds so small, but if you can give actual mathematical guarantees that you cannot tell, you know, whether a single individual's data, like whether it's my data or your data, for example, exist inside of a data set, then you can prove that 
no individual user's data can be compromised or linked to another data set. And the potential there, it, uh, it really opens the doors for, you know, what do I need to share data with partners or make data available across my business? You know that no individual customer's data, that record that represents Alex or Kyle in the data set could ever be proved to be part of that data set or not. I mean, it's really kind of small, but very significant guarantee on privacy. So having some privacy guarantees is something I don't think anyone would be against. And we've seen, you know, an endless string of breaches and compromises. Why is this sort of the exception rather than the standard at most companies? Well, we started talking about differential privacy, and there are so many cool technologies and things like that around privacy. We call them privacy-enhancing technologies, whether you're looking at federated learning, whether you're looking at differential privacy, like all these different ways to protect personal information. Differential privacy is unique, and then it gives you formal mathematical guarantees on the protection of data. But what happens there is it requires an understanding of the data set that you're working with, and it also often requires like a large amount of data to work well. So where we've seen differential privacy work in the past, where you know publicly we've seen it, would be the U.S. Census data, where they're trying to protect individual census information inside of there. We've seen it with Apple. has uh, They use it for their kind of funny story. They use it for your uh, keyword prediction and predicting what emoji you're going to use. <laughs> But it ends up that it's very sensitive data, but they have massive amounts of data to train from, and they can come up with a really good model that is also differentially private. So the, the short answer here is that often, without a really large data set to work from, differential privacy causes a hit to the accuracy or the utility of the data while it gives you those, those privacy guarantees. This is an, an area that we've spent a lot of time thinking about working on with our customers, and the accuracy is very important. And we see it being a balance for any customer on trying to figure out, like, how do I want to balance my privacy concerns and my accuracy concerns? Differential privacy makes perfect sense in some use cases where you need actual guarantees. In other use cases, you know, we've developed things we're calling privacy filters, but like always on, on by default mechanisms that were designed specifically to protect, protect against attacks on privacy that offer much lower hit to accuracy. So we actually ship these as an always on feature by default. You can disable them, but you're looking at a, you know, a 1% if that hit on accuracy when the privacy filters are enabled, but really good measurable protections against different types of attacks. And would you mind expanding on what an attack on privacy really is? Is this something hackers are now doing or what is what form does a, an attack on privacy take? Anywhere from hackers to data scientists. So, you know, that comes up, that question happens a lot. There's a couple different types of attacks that we were really careful to look at as we started building out Gretel that we see being relevant with, uh, with synthetic data. So I'll list them off and then maybe give you a couple examples. Maybe starting at the top, membership inference attack. So, you know, what is that attack? And that essentially that's saying, given that I know something about a data set, let's say we've got an income data set that is released by my business. I know that I make $101,000 per year. Knowing that information, can I infer whether myself or someone else I know that information for was present in this training data set? And it helped, essentially helped me kind of confirm the, the belief there. Two other types of attacks, and these are actually gained a fair amount of public notoriety recently, would be either like the memorization attacks, where, you know, we've seen this with uh, the OpenAI's models on GPT. We've seen it with Microsoft's language models. Essentially, you have language models that can write, they're trained on massive amounts of public data, and they can write, you know, uh, paragraphs or blogs or tweets or things like that for people. Well, if you suspect that, for example, maybe this was trained on 
some type of data that it shouldn't be uh, trained on, like maybe it has credit card information in it somewhere. You could essentially prompt the model with my credit card number is, and then start kind of filling in the credit card number and see if the model has been trained on or memorized any credit card numbers. That's pretty scary from a privacy perspective. Another kind of public example that I could give there, pretty relevant to the software community, is uh, with GitHub Copilot, where you have these language models that are helping, you know, assisting you to write code. What if that model was trained on, and then this gets into a compliance area, like what if that model was trained on, for example, a type of license that didn't enable it to be used for this use case? So that's something the model shouldn't be done, shouldn't be trained on. But you could kind of figure that out by prompting the model with your source code and trying to figure out if that model has been trained on it or not. The final type of attack, and a really scary one, is a joinability or data linkage attacks. And there's a pretty classic example where Netflix posted the Netflix Grand Prize Challenge. And this was a couple years ago, but it made headlines where Netflix said, we're going to release a highly anonymized version of 100 million movie reviews. And the goal is for the data science community to train algorithms that could outperform Netflix's own internal algorithms. And the team that had the best result got a prize of a million dollars. So, you know, both for the like the public recognition of the work that you've done and also the, the monetary prize I had a lot of eyes on this. And the kind of crazy thing was this this data set was so redacted. It only consisted of a movie ID and a date and a user ID for the reviewer, anonymized user ID, and then a number of stars that you gave it. And by itself, that wasn't identifying. What some of the researchers that were working on this challenge realized is that you could combine this data set with IMDb movie, movie reviews or things like that, where simply like the precision that you had of the date plus the you know a user ID plus a number of stars could allow you to unmask that user and then figure out every movie they'd ever rated and learn a lot about the users. And that required Netflix to take down the challenge and essentially kind of halt the challenge early. This is a case where synthetic data allows you to create another data set of 100 million movie reviews with privacy guarantees that there's no actual user in this data that could be joined to another data set. So it would enable competitions like this or data sharing like this to exist in a way that's not possible with regular kind of manual de-identification techniques. Great example, yeah. Well, organizations, especially technology groups, have had long histories of new challenges to fight. I remember there was a time when distributed denial of service attacks. I mean, they're still around, but now orgs have good tech teams to that know how to combat that. It seems like we're at the beginning of learning how to deal with data privacy. Would you agree? And uh, either way, what's your take on where the current state of the art is? 100% agree with you on that. And that was a really interesting example you just gave. My uh, my co-founder and our CTO, John Myers, actually worked at previously at, at Arbor. So huge, you know, denial of service prevention platform. They handle at some points like up to you know, a quarter or a third of the packets on the internet <laughs> that they're dealing with. And, you know, his task there was like, how do I, you know, use machine learning? How do I use like this knowledge across the world to prevent DDoS attacks on my customers? And part of what led him to Gretel was saying that as they built this product, they spent more time building the, like the data cleaning and the, like the data anonymization framework to make this possible as they spent actually building the product. So, you know, we view synthetic data, we view privacy enhancing technologies as a potential like real enabler for innovation and building products faster rather than something that, you know, creates a, a roadblock that you have to go through. 
And where does Gretel stand with respect to some of these compliance options? Can you help an organization achieve, you know, I don't know if it's a particular compliance certificate or anything like that? So whether it's like GDPR or CCPA, we've even seen customers working on the, like uh, there's Video Protection Act, you know, kind of these emerging standards around how different types of data need to get handled. We view Gretel as a tool that can help you meet data residency requirements. It can help you encrypt data as necessary to meet these objectives. We haven't built Gretel as a GDPR company or a CCPA company. There's lots of nuances and there's lots of ways that each business kind of needs to interpret you know, what those different standards mean to them. So we want to be the tool used to achieve it, but we aren't the, a service, for example, that would help you get compliance for, for CCPA. And do you think those sorts of requirements or maybe new compliance standards will emerge as it becomes clear that technology can better protect consumers, it's just not being adopted? I think it's something that consumers are starting to expect and demand. And I think when you look at Apple as an example, where they've built like such a business around the idea of respecting and protecting customer information, that I think consumers, when they're looking at products they want to buy, are going to consider the privacy and the, the steps that different companies that they work with every day or products that they buy take to protect their data as a real differentiator. I can give you an example. Like I have three little girls, right? And uh, we have all sorts of devices around our house that we use for security, you know, and video cameras and things like that. And it's really important to me to know that that data is being used in a way that I consider to be ethically safe and responsible. So that's something that I look for. And I think that a lot of like a lot of consumers are going to be looking for in the future. Yeah, perhaps the market can sort it out for us in that regard. <laughs> Could you define, a, I don't know if you've coined this or not, but I learned it from the, the Gretel blog. What is privacy engineering? Privacy engineering is the process that we take and to enable safe access to data. And what we see privacy engineering, you know, kind of really taking off at, you know, both with our customer base, we also see, you know, big efforts around privacy engineering happening at big companies like Google and Amazon. But the idea is rather than, you know, building safeguards and, you know, walls to access data, like later in the, in the, in the whole kind of process after your production data has been created, like actually interleaving these privacy enhancing technologies into the workflows that developers are building. So, you know, as data gets brought in as part of your pipeline, and we talked about earlier, like some of the automated processes using Airflow or other tools like that, that you can use to create a safe version as this data is being created, that's privacy engineering. When it's built early into the process for developers, like it enables much faster access, adoption, and innovation to happen later. Well, I would love to think that every CIO and you know chief data officer out there is thinking about solutions like this and looking at products like yours. And I hope that's true. That's probably a common path. But given the accessibility of Gretel, I think there's also the opportunity for this to come bottom up, that uh, software engineers and developers could bring these sorts of technologies in-house. Can you talk a little bit about what it would take for someone to do that? What's the standard getting started path or the hello world? Yeah. For us, uh, we've got a guided experience in the console. So all you need is a GitHub ID or uh, you know, a Gmail address, currently even a company email to sign in. From there, you know, what we tell developers is try building synthetic data you know, by itself. Sounds scary. You haven't worked with it before. There's a, you know, a big potential time investment. What we want to do is like make that as easy as possible. So with Gretel, when you sign in, you're provided a couple sample data sets and you can choose and, and, or drag your own. 
And what I would encourage, you know, any developers out there to do is try creating your own synthetic model, try creating your own synthetic data and just kind of go through that process so that when you're working with data and you find, hey, I, you know, wish I had a, a safer version of this production data to work with, or I want to train a machine learning model, like this becomes a tool that you can adopt really quickly to uh, to go through there. Uh, second thing I'd, I'd, like I would highly recommend, and, and, you know, we see a lot of our customers using our there's such great online resources for getting started with uh, with synthetic data. Actually, you know, we do a, a fair amount of uh, publications on Towards Data Science, which is a popular data science platform on Medium, talking about differential privacy, talking about how you can solve a problem that you might have at your business. So whether it's our blog, uh, it's Towards Data Science and things like that, we've got open source, freely adoptable examples you can use that are really based on the pain points we've seen with different customers. We'll definitely have some links in the show notes that listeners can follow up on. Maybe to wind up, can you tell me a little bit about recent releases or anything exciting that's coming down the pipeline for you guys? Yeah, at the end of this month, we're actually launching general availability. So what does that mean? <laughs> that's a very kind of uh, Amazon, AWS type term to use. And you know what that means is we're going from our open beta, where we were spending a lot of time learning from our customers, having tons of discussions and trying to figure out like what are these workflows that you want to solve for your business. We've built those workflows and we've been working behind the scenes to enable scale. And really for us, GA, you know, in addition to having the public pricing and things like that as part of it, really means that we have scaled synthetic data, we've scaled data classification, data transformation, those kind of core parts of Gretel to be able to support, you know, even what some really large customers we're working with are doing at operational scale. We've introduced the ability not only to run as a SaaS service, but actually to deploy our APIs, our workers, as containers inside your own environment. So if you're working with really sensitive data that cannot leave your VPC or cannot leave your, you know, even your laptop, for example, you have the ability to take all of the capabilities of Gretel, including the synthetic model training and, and creation, and deploy it as a container inside your environment and task it and build there. So those are a couple of features we're excited about coming around the pike and and uh, this is you know an area we've been blogging about quite a bit recently we see a lot of interest in in customers kind of expanding that notion of synthetic data from text and tabular data into other formats whether it be images or audio video simulations things like that and that's an area that we're actively working on and we're you know creating uh, open source examples to start with that we're pretty excited about well, very cool i'm uh, eager to follow that up and see where things go Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. It's a great conversation.